Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today for our seventh episode of Saving Face, a podcast dedicated to breaking the stigma around sharing hard-to-tell stories. I'm Ida, and I'll be your host for the series. For our first season, we're asking eight creatives to dive into some of their most difficult personal experiences, many of which are often rooted in trauma and shame. Throughout each episode, we'll explore the ways these experiences have impacted their work and give our guests the space to reframe these stories as moments of growth, forgiveness, and love. Today, we're speaking with producer and storyteller Eliza Enriquez. My name is Eliza. I'm a non-binary artist, uh, photographer. I make videos sometimes. I work full-time at Vice, but I also do a lot of other things on the side. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like how you put it at the end. You know, we don't let that define us. Yeah. I like that. Exactly. <laughs> the first time I worked with Eliza was actually through a video project for Vice. They brought me on to host a short documentary social film last March about small businesses in Chinatown at the beginning of the pandemic. We filmed before small businesses were closing down across all industries, focusing specifically on businesses in Chinatown that were disproportionately affected by xenophobia and anti-Asian sentiments sweeping across the country. While they often work to tell important stories across communities, Eliza's more recent work has actually focused on themselves. For the last couple months, I've been doing a lot of uh, self-portraiture about transness, about non-binariness, about microdosing testosterone. I've done a lot of service pieces uh, where essentially one of my aims is to A, give people the tools that they need to kind of self-actualize themselves, which I feel like a lot of people talk about that within transness. But I think outside of a framework that views transitioning as from point A to point B and more of a like choose your own adventure. and how you can kind of use medical systems and tools to to do that. Uh, it's hard and it definitely comes with like uh, the reason I'm in this position is because I have a lot of privilege and I'm able to navigate those systems relatively easily considering that I'm in New York City, um, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, that's one of the things. And then the other is representing my own experience uh, so that other people can understand that, you know, their experiences are valid, but not kind of in the same, I don't know, I like to differentiate it from what we see a lot of like magazines doing right now, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Documentation is at the core of Eliza's work. Their films and photography tell stories that are raw and honest, stories that capture life as it truly is. But I do think that there's some, there's a lot of like glamorizing and sensationalizing that comes along with trans imagery. And I think specifically I'm interested in like raw kind of real documentation of what it's like to be trans um whether that's like when things are really bad or when things are really good or when you're really confused or when you're still trying to figure things out i think you know i'm very much still trying to figure things out and using art art has been a great way to kind of parse through those things and and figure out what's going on as of late eliza has been focusing on how they visually represent trans identity especially on social media where images can lack depth or easily feel the same as the hundreds we scroll past every day. And so I've been really focusing on how do you distinguish visual visual representation that feels like it has concept and feels like it has meaning and feel like it has intention versus like, I made this image because it's a trans person, period. Because I feel like oftentimes 
that is how a lot of the how a lot of the like images coming out of mainstream media feel to me. And that frankly just misses the mark, in my opinion. Much of their work is rooted in the physical body, what it looks like, our relationship with it, and what it means to us. Body dysphoria is something that comes up a lot for me. I think self-actualization, um, progression or the art of progressing, not the art of progressing, I'm sorry, but more so like transitional space or like the liminal space of the literal body. So trying to understand like what it is to document things, not when you've five years has passed and you're like, oh, I've completed my journey now. Here I am. But more mm -hmm. so like what those kind of ugly and beautiful and messy moments in between look like. Um, because I think that every moment is a moment in between. And I don't foresee, for me personally, I don't see this as something that will ever go away or stop being a part of myself or that one day I'm going to wake up and be like the happiest person in my body. I think that it's a constant moving target. And I kind of am learning to embrace that and also kind of give that visualization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's so interesting because you're talking about documenting and kind of like capturing an experience, but I think what's really cool is the fact that it's your experience that you're interested in showing. And I think that's actually kind of rare. Um, mm. I know like like there is a problem with like narcissism on media <laughs> and yeah. like wanting to like put yourself out. I mean, like, you know, I'm a little bit like that, but... <laughs> <laughs> everyone like, everyone falls into it a little bit. <laughs> right. But I think when something so hard and personal and just like really raw, I think that mm. that's a whole different energy, you know, because I had a lot of trouble, for instance, talking about my chronic illness when I was going through that. I mean, and I still am, but less so now. Um, and it's like these are the things that actually are difficult to talk about that people don't really do. And mm. instead, like you hear about the end of the journey, like what you're saying, like, I beat it. I'm happy. Like yes. things are great now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think more and more people are kind of learning that we have to pull back the veil. Um, and I think specifically with transitioning, there's a really, really flawed narrative that you are not complete or you can't post about it until you've gotten to the other side somehow. Um, and I think too, for me, something I struggle with is I, I do put myself at the center because I can only speak to my experience and, and each experience is super, super unique, which is another thing that I find troubling about mainstream media representation is that oftentimes it paints transness with a broad brush, um, mm -hmm. as it does for any marginalized group really. But I think, you know, I always struggle with, I don't want people to feel like I'm narcissistic or like I'm trying to make myself the only representation of transness. I think it's just putting myself out there because this is another way that you can go about doing this thing. Like it's okay to not know where you want to end up. It's okay to be non-binary and, um, you know, inject hormones, but only a little bit of hormones. And like, this is what it does to your body over time. Because I think a lot of the times too, we are totally missing what that even looks like. Right. Because, mm, yeah, because a lot of the people that we see, if they're non-binary, typically are tall, skinny, white, androgynous. And if they're trans, usually trans women who have embraced the most feminine version of that thing or trans men who have embraced the most masculine version of that. And it's right. very hard to kind of picture yourself in the in that in between. Body dysphoria, what Eliza is talking about, 
is different from body dysmorphia, a mental health disorder in which you can't stop thinking about one or more perceived flaws in your appearance. I think actually a lot of people encounter body dysphoria in their lifetime. It's essentially this idea that like your body doesn't match what you want it to in your head. That's like a super generalistic version, but I think specifically in the context of transness, you know, people often, people who are AFAB. AFAB means assigned female at birth. Have body dysphoria around their hips or have body dysphoria around their chest. Things that don't feel as masculine as they would want them to be and vice versa. For AMAB people... And AMAB people are folks who are assigned male at birth. Um, but I think it can mean any number of things can be targeted at any number of things. You know, for me, it's... I have a lot of issues with my stomach, which may not be the same thing for another trans person. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's all unique to everyone's individual experience. I think the other thing to say about body dysphoria, too, is that it's hard. Something I've been thinking about a lot is parsing out how much of body dysphoria is imprinted on me because of society and what we think masculinity looks like in my specific case and how much of that is actually me disliking my body and so i i've been challenging myself specifically i'm working on a on a series right now where i'm photographing myself nude for the first time and it's like i grew up not really thinking about my body pretending i wasn't in my body very much dissociating which a lot of people have experienced and i think having to photograph myself nude for the first time has forced me to kind of confront, like, what do you actually dislike about your body and why do you dislike it? And I think mm. it's a really, really nice, it's just a really great way to be able to work through those things. And it, that feels like really tangible instead of like writing where visually I can look at myself and say, oh, I think that I, you know, have looked at someone else's body and said, oh, that's masculinity to me for whatever reason. Right. Right. I, I I, also struggle with that, like, in general. Like, what do we – what are we actually wanting versus what are we doing as performance, right, essentially? Right. Yeah, because it's yeah, what yeah. someone else has defined as what we should want. Thus, is it what we want or are we just told that we want it? Or do we not even know and it became what we want along the way? Yeah. It's it's Judith Butler. Like, I, I read Judith Butler when I was in, like, I think my first year of college. And when I read, like, Genders of Performance, I was like – oh my God, I'm like dumbfounded. This is so crazy. But of course, gender is a performance. It's like this thing that we've been taught to put on like theater. And it's just so, it's just so hard to disentangle though at the end right. of the day. Totally. I think the other thing that you mentioned um, is that we do see this one very specific picture of a non-binary person. And it almost is this androgynous white figure. And like, I think mainstream media has propagated it like to an extreme to where like, right. like other communities might even aspire to that. You know, it's one of those mm. things where it's like when I was young, I didn't think being thin was a good thing, but then, um, I only saw those like rail thin models like right. in the 2000s. And Absolutely. then I ended up anorexic because I just kept seeing that all the time. Like as, as a person of color, how does, I don't know, how does that imagery kind of affect you? Yeah, it's really tough. Um, I think that for me at first, I was really excited to even see people like this out in the media. And I was like, oh my God, non-binary. Whoa, so cool. We're putting it in the headline. Yeah, that's incredible. I think, too, before I get into it, I want to acknowledge my privilege in the sense that I'm pretty much white passing. Like, I think if people, if I told people I'm Latinx, they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But, like, to your average person, I could seem white. So 
I feel like sometimes I, I'm also kind of tossing and turning with that a little bit. But overall, I think that like projecting people that are tall and skinny specifically um, uh, is just so problematic in so many ways because a lot of the trans people that are out there are just not, you're not born with that body. And then you see images of people who have transitioned and you're like, I'm going to look like that when I transition. And it gives you this false narrative that testosterone or, you know, estrogen somehow does this magical thing to your body. And the reality is that like, Mm -hmm. wherever your body's at, at the beginning, your body's not going to change. Your body is going to change, but it's not going to change so much so that suddenly you become you know, a foot taller and your body is made up a different way. Like if you're big boned, you're big boned. And so I think that was a huge kind of like wake up call for me when I first started testosterone, you know, granted I've been microdosing for a long time, so I don't take a, a huge amount of it, but I was like, oh, wait a second. Like those people are just born like that and have the privilege of walking through the world like that. And I think, you know, it's so it's such a detriment to anyone else in the trans community, of which there are so, 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 so many people because you learn that, oh, that's if I'm going to be trans and attractive, like I have to look like that. And if I don't, then society literally wants me dead. And that's like a really kind of crazy, crazy disparity within the trans community where on the one hand, we're celebrating these like white, skinny, tall people. And then on the other hand, you know, black trans women are dying every day. Right. So it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard. It's hard to talk about, you know, no, no group is a monolith, including transness. I think, you know, everyone falls on the spectrum of trans. There's like a very wide spectrum is what I'm trying to say. But I do think that like, it's something that we don't talk about enough um, in the mainstream media and we don't acknowledge that enough. And as Eliza describes, it can be hard to reconcile wins and representation with progressive movements, a struggle I resonate with a lot as an Asian American. It's so tough because sometimes I feel so negative where I like, I want to be celebratory. And oftentimes like I am the one, I'm a pretty like jovial person. I like to be celebratory of everything. I think people like Alok are doing really amazing work in this space. But at the same time, it's kind of like we want to bring people back down to earth or be like, hey, yeah, you know, hey, to my to my sis mom, like, this is great, but it's also not enough. And there's also a lot of other because, you know, people are like it's and and I get it's a slow moving process, but I feel like the media has so much power and the media hasn't quite caught leverage that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over time, I've personally found that that dichotomy is partially due to the vast range of where each of us are in our journeys. Some of us have just learned how to celebrate our identities, for example, whereas others achieved that years ago and are on a much more critical level now. For many of us, that journey is heavily influenced by our family. And despite how honest Eliza is in their work, they still struggle with speaking openly about what they do with their family. You know, with my parents, I feel like they, we had a really, I had a tumultuous upbringing in the sense that my parents weren't super supportive at first. I am very privileged that they accepted me in the end. I never got kicked out or anything. But that being said, I've always found it difficult to speak to them about my experiences and have felt kind of ashamed, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a part of my family on my dad's side, they're super, super religious and super conservative. And so, you know, I'm always weighing this like, it almost feels like imposter syndrome where I'm like constantly telling people, be who you are, like 
make work about yourself, show yourself, et cetera, et cetera, or like talk to me about who you are. And yet, you know, with my own family, I'm just like not super, super open about the work that I do. And so I think that's something that I'm still trying to reconcile because yeah, family trauma is real. (laughs) Yes, I'm right here with you on that. (laughs) But what was your childhood like a little bit, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, growing up from from the get-go, I had that feeling of like, I don't, I used to want to be a boy when I was younger. It's very hard to explain to people because they're like, then you're a trans man. And I'm like, no, 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 no. What, like the language that I had then and what I understood, I was like, oh, I want to be a boy. And so my parents at first were pretty supportive. My dad is like, my dad is like the chill one and doesn't really care. And so I used to be able to like run around without a t-shirt on and this and that. And then as I got older, me and my mom just didn't have a super good relationship. We fought all the time about what I was wearing. We fought all the time about if I was gay. It was always like this kind of unspoken thing. And then Hmm. there was kind of a pivotal point in the seventh, in middle school, we'll say that. In middle school where I got caught with one of my girlfriends and this was like a huge blow up. My mom didn't talk to me for several days. It was a whole thing. Kind of swept it under the rug, pretended it never happened. And then And if you knew me back then, I was like a super goody two-shoes, like never did anything wrong. And then in eighth grade, I got caught with alcohol at school, but I hadn't drank any of it. It was like in my bag because I was Mm -hmm. like angsty and I was like, I'm going to get drunk because life is hard. But I Mm -hmm. secretly, I like had no plan of doing that. (laughs) So I got suspended, which was like shocking to the entire school and shocking to my parents and like, what's going on with you? And I was like, clearly like I'm, you know, I'm gay and like, I'm just finding it hard to live in this household. And so my parents kind of came around and like, we're pretty cool about it. But then, you know, I still hadn't talked to them about the trans thing. And there were moments like I have a very distinct memory when I was in the kitchen I was in the kitchen one night and um, True Life MTV, best show of all time, was on and it was a, it was an episode about transness and my parents were like, oh, if that was my kid, I would like totally give them up. Like I wouldn't be their parent. And I was like, oh shit, look, I can't talk to my parents about this. They're going to disown me. Right, so I, think right. I just kept that inside for a really long time. And it's always kind of been this like, randomly I'll have an outburst and be like, you know, like I feel this way, blah, 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 blah all this stuff. And then my parents will be like, Okay, and it'll be this really intense, heavy time, and then we'll kind of pretend it never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm complicit in that too, just because I find it very hard to talk to them about my feelings. But I think, you know, we're in a much better place than we were then. And I think, you know, every year that passes, you know, as you become an adult, you kind of learn to disregard what your parents think to a certain extent and realize that you have to be your own person. And so I think. Yeah, I'm every day I get a little bit closer, but for example, they like don't even know, they don't even know what my pronouns are. And so whenever I go home with my partner, my partner's like they're using she her pro. What is this? And I'm like, yeah, um, I know, just it's they we're, we're not ready for that conversation yet. Over the years, Eliza's relationship with their family has come so far since their childhood. I feel like I've always kind of worn my heart on my sleeve, but a lot of things went unspoken in school, like when I was in middle school and and high school. And then I think I really started kind of wearing, you know, a label uh, starting Mm. in college where I was just like, you know what, I'm I'm like sick of this. But I think that, you know, it's 
it's hard. It's hard because I I feel like someone who is very, very conscious of how people feel, whether it's a stranger or someone that I've known for a long time. I pick up on emotional cues. And so I think I'm always weighing, like, will this make this person uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. And I and I think only in, like, the last year, year and a half, have I really started to let go of, like, I don't care if this makes you uncomfortable. Like, deal with it kind of thing. Well, I think that's super interesting because in our first episode, Ivy talked about that as almost like a form of codependency to yeah. where, right, like you care so much about this other person and their feelings and what they need that you are kind of like sacrificing your own well-being to oh my God. accommodate for them, right? Big time, big time codependency. Yeah. Like that is a perfect way of putting it. I think a lot of people, you know, who live in marginalized groups deal with that all the time, deal with that at work, deal with that, you know, in their interpersonal relationships. I think for me, it comes up a lot in my personal, like in my romantic relationships where I'm like, I'm going to make myself more masculine or I'm going to make myself more feminine depending on how comfortable you are with me being trans, which is just like an insane thing to say out loud now that I'm like, when I say that, I'm like, oh God, what what am I doing? Like, I would never, if any of my friends said that they were doing that, I'd be like, fuck that person or like be honest with them, but you can't, you can't keep living like this. Right. And so I think, you know, that's been a huge kind of in the last couple of years, that's been something that I've actively worked through. And I, I can say now that I feel much more comfortable being who I am and being like, you know, I'm going to paint my nails and I'm not going to think you're going to think that's weird or feel weird about it. Um, but it's hard. It's, it's, I think it, in the one hand, it's like this weird thing of like internalized transphobia that we kind of take on from the people around us and like the environments that we live in. And I think on the other, other hand, it's like, I just want to be loved, you know, just like anybody mm-hmm. else. And if I have to do X, Y, and Z to get it, I guess it's not that bad. Part of my journey working through that stuff has really been finding community and other people who are struggling with the same thing. So in my case, like other trans folks, specifically like people that have kind of who I've seen kind of going through the same things at the same time where I can say, hey, have you ever felt this way? And they're like, oh, my God, yes. Like Mm. I did that. I've done that so many times that I'm like, oh, thank God. Okay, we can talk about this and I can kind of let loose a little bit and like feel like I can be myself. Even now, Eliza still struggles with their own self-perception sometimes when they're in relationships with cis folks. Again, I'm like trying to let go of that form of codependency where I need validation. You know, really, I had a really specific experience growing up where I felt like a lot of the people that I dated, it was like, oh, I like boys and you. Like you're the exception. And they weren't necessarily, they didn't necessarily identify as queer. A lot of them, you know, are married now to men, um, which is not a bad thing, but that always made it very, very hard to disentangle my understanding of being valid from what, you know, cis, the cis women I dated wanted out of a person. And so I think in all these ways, I kind of shaped myself to be more masculine than I actually felt, or I would perform very specific things like sexually where I was like, I don't really, I'm not really into this, but I think this is what you want. And this is kind of what you're telling me that you want. Um, And so I think, you know, for, I'm still struggling to kind of unlearn those things. And it's 
so crazy how much of a grasp that stuff has on you. But I think, you know, for the first time in my life in this relationship, the person that I'm with, like, hasn't put any of those, as a matter of fact, has not put any of those, like, expectations on me. I've brought those expectations to the table because of who I've dealt with in the past. So I'm like, oh, you want me to be like this? And she'll be like, no, what? I don't, I don't even. I've never said that before in my life. And I'm like, oh, but that's like how you be a good, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, so insecurity is definitely something I still struggle with where like I'm constantly looking at men on the street and I'm like, I want to be like you, but I know that I don't want to be like them. Um, but it, you know, it gets better every year. And I think to going back to the community, the community thing, it's like, once you enter into queer spaces and feel like you've been seen by people who don't have those expectations, who don't care about those things, it like makes a huge difference and alleviates so much tension and like trauma. But I think like it's so necessary to create spaces like that for yourself within yourself as well as in relationships with others in order to like start unlearning that kind of trauma because it builds up over years, like over decades, right? It's not like you're, like you said, it's not something we even actively think about. Like it is subconscious in our minds at this point. And like at the end of the day, it really is a performance. Like it keeps yeah. coming back to that. Yeah. What I've learned over 27 years of life is that everything is a performance. <laughs> and then you just have to unlearn it and learn how to be yourself, which is like honestly one of the hardest things to do. Right. Because we're constantly like, especially as a trans person, gender is every fucking where everywhere you go people are boxing you into you know if you're this i treat you this way if you're that i treat you that way you can use this restroom or use this restroom uh i may say hi to you if you're this but i may not say hi to you otherwise and it's like there are all these social cues and social norms that you're constantly butting up against and so the older i've gotten and the more that i've you know, been able to be in queer spaces, the more I'm like, I don't want to live in the rest of the world because the, the rest of the world is hell bent on ensuring that everybody gets boxed in. And that just do doesn't make sense. It's not how we operate actually at home, you know, when we're being right. real people. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I don't know what the end of that thought is. I just, gender is so prevalent. And I think part of the reason I do the work that I do is also like, Sometimes I do make work for straight people, hoping that straight cis people will see it and think to themselves, oh, maybe I should rethink the way that I look at my own gender, or maybe I should rethink the reasons that I do X, Y, and Z. That's not to say that at the end of the day, you can't choose to paint your nails if you're a woman. I'm not, a, I'm not against that, but I think questioning what influence gender has on us and our our persons, the way that we interact with other people, who we like, who we don't like, like all of that is so, so, so ingrained in us and needs to be, you know, fundamentally uprooted. And I think, you know, we're slowly, we're slowly doing that slowly. Something else I keep, I keep feeling when you're talking about this is we have kind of like these perceptions of what trauma is, for instance, we have mm. like big T trauma, which is what yeah. another topic Ivy covered in our first episode, where it's like something really, really happened to you Traumatic. in this one instance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, 
and it shook you, maybe it hurt you. Like it was something like immediate and acute basically. Yeah. But then there's little T trauma, which is like kind of, I feel like what you're describing where it's constant and it builds up and it's something that we are like almost always barraged by, but we don't even notice it sometimes that it's happening. Like the example that she gave was um, when I was young, like I cried a lot as a baby and my mom didn't ever come to comfort me. Mm. And like that becomes trauma, you know? Yeah, and it's like, that's huge. it's crazy because like in so many ways, like that is what we do to people who don't fit into these like nice little boxes society's outlined, right? Like it's like, well, like let's, let's not budge to create space for them. And then it becomes this constant feeling of abrasion, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love that way of looking at it. I mean, you just become ostracized and whether or not people, you know, it's, it's a really wild thing to think about all the people, you know, all the trans people who go to, let's say a a normal nightclub and feel scared or feel insecure or feel like, Oh, I don't know if I can be here because I might see this person who doesn't know that now I dress like this. Like there's just so many ways that it like permeates your life that it kind of, it, it, it becomes all consuming. And I think, you know, sometimes I'm like, all I want to do at the end of the day is like be happy and be able to like live my life normally and not worry about if someone's going to look at me weird or whatever. And I'm like on the fairly privileged side of the spectrum. So it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's little T trauma but it's in relationship to this huge concept that sometimes feels so daunting to try and unpack and unlearn or get people to unpack and unlearn because everything we do is imbued with gender. Right. And sometimes I'm just like, I don't fucking know anymore. Like, I'm just going to hang out with queer people. Fuck it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. When your community is undergoing constant trauma and doing the work to educate others, it can be extremely exhausting. As we discussed earlier on, representation and education can help others be more aware of these issues, but it's also not without its challenges either. Do you feel like increased representation is something that does help challenge these perceptions and kind of like shift the needle? Yeah, I think that's a a tough question. I think the answer is incredibly nuanced. I think yes and no. Uh, you know, on the one hand, as we've seen increased representation, we've also seen increased violence. Mm. Um, that's not to say that that violence didn't exist before. Maybe the reason that we're hearing about it now is because people know that trans people exist and so people are reporting on it. I don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. But I also think like representation comes with a lot of responsibility and a lot of what I see in the media is irresponsible. And so I think responsible representation, yes, does push people forward. You know, when we're showing people in very nuanced ways that shows them in a human light, not in this kind of sensationalized, like even when people who, I don't know, even when people who are like binary, who present as like a trans man, for example, when they post like a full body nude and they post their genitalia, that to me is also not not really progressive because in my mind you're sensationalizing the fact that your genitalia is different than what people think it should be. And that whole aspect is like what 
gets us here or what has gotten us here. It's this obsession with what is in your pants Mm -hmm. and does Mm -hmm. it match with what I think it should match with when in reality, the things that we feel, the things who we are, the gender that we occupy, all of that is incredibly complex and nuanced and can't be boiled down to one part over the other. And so I think that what I'd like to see more of is responsible representation. I think that is going to be the thing that drives us forward. And I think we're getting to a place where people can stop putting like, look at this trans person. They're trans. Like that doesn't offer me anything, right? There needs to be a story there. There needs to be like complexity and there needs to be a human angle. And so you know, I think we're starting to see a bit more about that. You know, Disclosure Doc that was on Netflix did a really good job of explaining why representation can be very bad and why people have the perception of trans people that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I still think we have a ways to go as well. Definitely. I feel like we're coming kind of full circle because then I immediately think of your work and what you're doing right now, right? The documenting the real raw experiences and sharing them with the world. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Thank you. I I don't know. I'm still at this place where I'm like, is it work? But I (laughs) do think that if more people kind of take it into their own hands to document themselves, that that is what people can engage with, you know, like the best kind of most profound pieces of cinema and music and any other kind of art form I find have always have this element of feeling relatable and human and there's something relatable and human in all of us. And I think specifically with the trans experience, we've been painted to be these kind of like freaks or like otherworldly. And while all those things, we might embrace those titles, I think at the same time, it's like, you know, I am also insecure about my body. You're probably insecure about your body because this, none of this makes sense for anyone. Um, And I think with my work, I'm really trying to, mainly the give tools to other trans people to figure out their shit, but also just tell cis people like, hey, we exist and like we struggle, we're human and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. And, and kind mm-hmm. of normalize those, those images instead of sensationalizing them. For now, Eliza is going to focus their energy on creating space for their community and to keep pushing past the performative nature embedded in almost everything we do. What drives you right now? Um, What are things right now that make you move? Currently, it's trying to create better spaces or more space, whether that's physical or metaphorical, for other trans people to exist to see themselves to write their own stories um i think what also drives me is like becoming a better person so that i can give more because i think Mm. the more that you know it's very hard to give right now it feels very hard to give but i think it's really important that we stay connected with our the people that we love and our communities because it's very easy to kind of fall into Something I find myself easily susceptible to is this idea of like, I, 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 or like me, 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 Mm -hmm. even within the like fundraising efforts or within the this, there's just something about social media that kind of promotes that, that individualism. Right. So I think 
things to summarize, things that keep me going is like being able to like pass the mic slash make space, make a stage for other folks. I think being good to my loved ones, the ones that have kind of held me up throughout all of this, being good to my community. Um, and then, yeah, being able to resist any sort of like capitalistic, individualistic sort of entities that are trying to suck you up in, in their tentacles. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It's just such a weird, it's something I'm, I just have been thinking about a lot lately as I like, you know, when you work in media, you have to be on social media and you have to promote yourself as this brand and this image. And at a certain point, this starts to feel disingenuous, but then at a certain point, does it, you start to like embrace it. And I'm like, I don't know that I ever want to get to that place. Like I'd rather kind of build bonds with people outside of that space. And so, yeah, I just encourage everybody to kind of keep that in mind, like community first and remember what it's like to relate to a person physically yeah, um, mm -hmm. and care about people and not get swept up into, cause it's all fucking part of, it's all part of the system. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is a hundred percent. And like, it's fake too. It's just it's another fake. stage for this performance that we keep talking about. Right. And like, I think I, I just called my friend yesterday and she was going through such a hard time and I had no idea because you would have no idea based on the things people share. People don't know what people are really going through. And I feel like spaces that create that connection and those moments, they are so important and so invaluable and we have to just keep trying to make them. Yeah. I think remembering to like cultivate that kind of personal that that ability to be a human with another person and also just reminding yourself to be present is like top of mind always in the last mm -hmm. couple of months. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it was an honor to have you here. Yeah, I really appreciate you all asking me. I feel like I rambled so much, <laughs> but like hopefully it makes sense to someone out there. Um, and it really was an honor to be to be on the podcast. I appreciate it. And thank you for getting me to talk about my feelings because I never talk about my feelings. So that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today for our seventh episode of Saving Face. I'm Ida, and I hope that you will join us again next week. Until then, take care. Saving Face is brought to you by New Fly Magazine. We'd like to give a special thank you and shout out to Matt Hong, our audio engineer, for making the soundscape for each of our episodes. I'd also like to thank Belinda Mann, who's helped co-produce the series with me, as well as Daniel Fung, who has put together our cover art for each episode. And of course, we'd like to thank our wonderful guests for having the courage and openness to share their stories. Thank you so much for listening. 